Despite what I, I said before before we started recording, you are allowed to talk about my wife, Gomer. Okay. Thank you. God. This was going to be such an awkward conversation because I only have questions about your wife. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Catching Foxes, America's third favorite Catholic podcast with explicit content behind the crunch and, I don't know, probably people who listen to Taylor Marshall. Anywho, I am joined today by a very special guest. We have Kanye West's older brother, Christopher, <laughs> on the phone. Very excited. How you doing, Christopher? Um, I'm, Kanye, I'll be right there. Uh, hold on. I'm on a podcast right now. Um, I'm Nice. Do you want the honest answer? Yes. How are you doing? I'm being refined. Okay. Painfully. Okay. Just, okay. Just jump right into it. All right. Yeah. Here we go. He asked. He wanted an honest answer. I'm telling you, yeah, I'm being refined, and it's painful. At least let mm. them introduce me first, and then we could talk more about your your painful <laughs> refinement. Slightly less uh, uh, purgatorio. Uh, we have Mike Mangione on the phone. How you doing, Mike? Yes, father of Chuck Mangione. For all you older listeners out there, I'm doing well. Thank you. Nice, nice. We don't have older listeners besides Luke's mom. So. Hey, I just want to add that for real, Mike Mangione is related to Chuck Mangione, the musician, and we once figured this out. Mike and I <laughs> sat and and actually did the genealogy and if i remember correctly mike it was something like second cousin twice removed when you were figuring that out <clears throat> i i just looked at your face until you were done thinking <laughs> and whatever you said i agree with so whatever you say that's nice. where and, i am and then we that's did the I math did. On, on kanye west mm. and we came up with something like 14th cousin Removed twelve times. Nice. So ballpark. You're in the ballpark. You're saying yeah. there's a chance, is what you're there, saying. There, I once heard it said that your most distant relative on the planet is your fifty second cousin. So you, nice. we're all related. We got to just yeah. keep that in mind. Do you know who my first cousin is? Kevin Bacon. Kevin like, Bacon. I'm. I'm no, not, not sure. really. Not like, really. Like the not musician. Really. Oh. No, I like the famous actor. You for half a moment. Yeah, yeah, you should never believe me. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because Luke is super busy and uh, he couldn't be on the show, so now I'm scrambling to get co-hosts. And then, as I'm praying to the, uh, the, the almighty God of the universe to send me something, your buddy Bill shoots me an email saying, Hey, Mike, we're doing this a new event. We got this book, God is Beauty, that we're publishing. We got so much happening here. Would you ever want to have Christopher and Mike on the show? And I said, Kanye's brother, always. And so I, I just asked him, I was like, dear God, can he do it this week? And so uh, he said yes, but that email got lost when he said, how about March 30th at 5 p.m. Eastern? And that email totally got lost on me. And so we're emailing back and forth, and I didn't even see that. And then it popped up, and he's like, so just send me the link. And I was like, what, for what? Oh, oh, okay, this is happening. So uh, I didn't realize till about 45 minutes ago that we were doing this. So I'm very excited, very excited. I didn't realize till about five minutes ago we were doing this, so you're ahead of the game. <laughs> yes. Nice. I'm still not sure what's going on. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit. Um, you know, Christopher, you have been spreading the good news of the theology of the body for how many years now? 20? Uh, 25-ish. 25? My, the first time I got invited to give a talk 
on John Paul II's Theology of the Body was April of 1994. So do the math on that. What has stood out to you after all these years? Like, I mean, honestly, you've given, you are the guy in, in the United States. You are, what did Michael Waldstein call you? The, the apostle of the theology of the body. I mean, no one has spent more, I mean, every, every youth minister has copied your talks, but no one has spent more time thinking, wrestling, going through the life of JP2, all this stuff. What has stood out to you the most with TOB? Yeah, I, first of all, I don't know that that's true. There are, there are lots of other people out there who, who may have even spent more time. I don't know. May I'm no, no, no. I talked to them. They all said it to you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I accept. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I would say what has stood out for me over the years is that it gets more and more pertinent. It is for such a time as this, the time we are living through now with the all out war against the meaning of being male and female in our world today. Um, we need this now more than ever. John Paul II was ahead of his time. Uh even more than I think he understood, although he probably understood very well that the end result of a culture of death is death, and that the way you bring about death is by eliminating the thing that brings life, which is the sexual difference. Mm. <laughs> if you want mm. to create a culture of death, attack that which brings life, and that which brings life is male and female, he created them. If, if you can attack the genitals and, and render the genitals unable to generate then the culture of death is secure. What's becoming more and more clear to me, and this was, this was critical in my own conversion. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this story. It was 1992. I was going to an Easter vigil because a friend of mine was coming into the church. And he stood up there in front of everybody and he said, I believe everything, I believe and profess everything the Catholic Church believes and professes. Then he was welcomed into communion with the church. And then he received communion in the church. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to communion that night because I realized for the first time as a cradle Catholic who had had no faith in my teenage years. And then in my early 20s, I came back to faith. But I was kind of just going to mass because that's what I was raised with. Um, I, I didn't really understand Catholicism per se at this stage. Yeah. But I I knew that night that I was not in communion with the Catholic Church, and I knew that to receive communion was dishonest. And so I didn't go to communion. And the issue that I I was really wrestling with with was contraception. And and I just started asking people. I I realized if I don't come to terms with this blasted teaching— uh, I, 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 I just ha- I'm, I want to be a man of integrity. I am protesting the church's teaching in this regard. If I can't come to terms with it, I just have to admit that I am a protestant. Yeah. And I need to leave. Um, and that set me on a journey of really trying to understand this contraception issue. And I, I did come to understand it. The scales kind of fell off my eyes, but I had to do a lot of searching because I went to my parish priest, and he said, oh, don't worry about it. The, we're going to have a pope later on who changes the teaching. I, I went to a married couple. I thought they must be living the church's teaching because they have five or six kids. Um, and he said, no, nah, our priest told me I could get a vasectomy after our last child, so that's what I did. And it was really hard to find clear answers to these questions I had. Discovering John Paul II's teaching was, was instrumental. And I remember kind of the feeling of, of scales falling off my eyes. 
it really changed the way I saw not just God's plan for sex, but it changed the way I saw the Catholic Church. It changed the way I saw the sacraments. It changed the way I saw heaven and hell and everything in between. And and I knew then I, I needed to share this with the world. And long story short, um, that conviction, that contraception, what I came to see is contraception is at the root of, of the cultural mess we are in. And that has just been confirmed over and over and over again. And this gender confusion that we are now immersed in, it simply cannot be understood without the wholesale embrace of contraception in the culture. Contraception, I would say, is the original attack against the meaning of gender. Because the meaning of gender, if you look at that Greek root, gen, G-E-N, which we see in other words like generous, generate, progeny, genealogy, genitals. Eugene, Eugene Levy, Eugene, Eugene Oregon. <laughs> it means, gen means to produce or give birth to. Yeah. And, and that means gender means the manner in which you beget, the manner in mm. which you bring life into the world. And that's determined by our genitals. Uh, a man's, a male's genitals generates the next generation with sperm. Uh, a female's gender's genitals generate the next generation with ova. There are two genders. There are two manners in which we generate new life, with sperm and with eggs. Which do you have? That determines your gender. Um, that used to be just simple biology, but we have, we, man, we are, we're more than screwed. All right, buckaroos, here we go. It's a new BetterHelp ad read. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around a mental health. There are a lot of people that think if you're in therapy, it means that there's something wrong with you, but that's wrong too. It means that you recognize that all humans have emotions. We can't avoid them, so we need to learn how to manage them. I love that part. We've been taught that that a mental health shouldn't be part of normal life, which is also wrong. We take care of our bodies with the gym, the doctor, and nutrition. We should be focusing on our minds just as much as we focus on on our body. So as a lot of you guys know, I went to therapy a couple, like probably I started maybe two years ago. It was a fantastic experience. I find that it's just, uh, just get up, like helps you on the process, a lot of the junk that's, that's happened. And a lot of, and even like part of the good stuff too, what are some um, good things that are going on in your life? You need to recognize, or just, just having an outside voice walk with you as you process stuff is really very, very cool. And I want to, the great thing about better help is that it is a much more um, affordable than in-person um, therapy. And you can be matched with the therapist in under 48 hours. I want you to give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is, is, is spotted by, by BetterHelp and Catching Foxes I'm a, and Catching Foxes listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash foxes. Thank you to BetterHelp for once again sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. There was a, a person who said to me once talking about um, their kid whom they love. And the kids said a line that I remember reading at Franciscan um, when we were studying Christian marriage from, uh, we had a book called Lost Fathers. And I believe it was in that book. I might, have, I might be mistaken, but I believe it was in that book where it's like left, right, and center critiquing fatherlessness in America. And they said that this kid repeated 20 years later the, the silly philosophy of um, 
of this author, and I want to get your your opinion. He said, or how you would answer this kid. So the kid said to his parents, "I'm bisexual," and the dad looks at him and says, "What is? I don't even know what that means. How can you be attracted to both men and women? Like I understand that exists, but he's like, I'm not attracted to men. I'm attracted to women because they're women. So can you help me understand? Right? So this was the kid's response." To which I find to be just shocking. Um, He said, Dad, I love the person. What do I care about what dangles or doesn't between their legs? Wow. 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 And I remember reading years ago some, you know, philosopher who, you know, probably no one knows, but some cultural Marxist who was like, you know, the idea is to get to the consciousness of, of the person, not the body. The body, you know, basically the, the body doesn't matter. You know, who cares about a little bit between their thighs? I think that was the phrase. Yeah. Um, and I just am like, oh, 20 years later, this is now something that a high school student is repeating as it gets filtered through academia. Yeah. So my response to that is that's that's Gnosticism. That's the rupture of the body from the person. It's it's Manichaeism, it's dualism, and it's diabolic. It, it says that matter doesn't matter, and and that's just contrary to to reality, uh, and it's contrary to the whole mystery of Christianity, which is the mystery of the incarnation. Saint John, in one of his letters, says, "How do we tell the difference between the good spirits and the the bad spirits, the evil spirits?" And he says, here's the key. The good spirit, the Holy Spirit, acknowledges Christ come in the flesh. It acknowledges divine revelation happens in and through matter, more specifically, the human body. And the evil spirits deny this. The, the evil spirit says matter doesn't matter. Uh, this, is, this is the very definition of death, the rupture of body and soul. That is what a culture of death is. It is a culture that has ruptured the body and the soul. To say, what do I care what dangles between someone's legs? Well, let me tell you what dangles between someone's legs. Genitals. Uh, Unless you're a woman, you don't have anything dangling there because your genitals are interior, uh, which is... This is this is not a footnote. Genitals are not a footnote. If it weren't for your parents' (laughs) genitals... And my parents' genitals. I do we would think not we just got the title of the show. Yeah, I what, do think we just got the title of the show. What's that's that a quotable. That's a quotable. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's what you're tweeting yeah. out. You know? What did I? Yeah. What did I say? What did I say? <laughs> genitals are <clears throat> genitals are not a footnote. <laughs> yeah, genitals you, <laughs> genitals are not a footnote. This is mm. if it weren't for the fact that our parents understood what their genitals were for, we would not exist. <laughs> this is a question of existence. This is an existential reality. And the attack yeah. against the genitals is the attack against the mystery and meaning of human life in its very origins, in its very origins. And because we are made in the image and likeness of God as male and female, which, by the way, just have to clarify, that doesn't mean God is sexual. God is not sexual, but our sexuality is a sign in this world of the mystery of a life-giving, loving God who is three persons. 
Um, again, not sexual, but our sexuality reveals the mystery of, the, of Trinitarian life-giving love. So this attack against our genitals, this attack uh, that, that says, you know, what do I care about something dangling between the legs? Well, I hope you care. Your existence depends on it. And so does our understanding and even our entrance into heaven. Why? Because grace perfects nature. And the very reality that Jesus himself uses to help us know how to enter the kingdom is the reality of generation. Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom unless you are regenerated, born again. And Nicodemus is confused. He's confusing realms here. He says, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus does not say no, but he raises the conversation to a whole new level. And he says, Nicodemus, if you don't understand the earthly reality, you're never going to understand the heavenly reality. This is, this is what St. Paul's getting at also in Ephesians 5. The one flesh union refers to a heavenly reality, the reality of Christ's love for the church. If we don't understand the natural reality of why we are male and female and why the two are called to become one flesh, we're never going to understand the heavenly destiny we have of being one in the flesh with Jesus Christ forever. This is our destiny. Can I just add really quick, because at first take, somebody could hear that and say, well, that's good because he's, he's not judging the individual. He's loving everybody, which is a good. But what Christopher, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're getting at, though, is that it doesn't just stop at the face value. You have to love the entire person and, 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 and who they are truly in their identity, which is either a male or a female. Correct. Yeah. To, to, yeah. to X out the body from personal identity is not to love the person as the person really is. Yeah. To love the person as the person really is, is to embrace the whole person, body and soul. I don't know. I prefer to love platonic ideals. It's a lot easier. It's a whole lot easier. Well, you're right. You are absolutely (laughs) right. It is a lot easier. Because to love the person bodily is to embrace the whole story from conception to death. And, And I think... Something that's going on here in this rejection of the body, it's related, I would say, to a fear of where we know of what we know happens to the body. Yeah. I think a lot of what is going on here is an abject fear of death. Yeah. And when we lose sight of the possibility of a bodily resurrection, we end up loathing our bodies because they just remind us that we're returning to dust. Yeah. And we try to live we try to live and, and love these you know, consciousnesses divorced from the body. Yeah, to me, I, I just look at it as yet another symptom of our modern world that, like, mechanizes everything and reduces everything. It reduces everything to matter so that I can manipulate it for my own ends. And then you sit there and you start to think about how this affects interpersonal relationships to the point where, like, I'm willing to use your genitals in order to derive pleasure for my own consciousness but yes, i don't believe yes. your genitals have meaning is in, yes. a, in another way is it, just a way to um number one it denaturalizes right it removes nature it attacks nature like uh, we are the most unnatural generation of human beings who has ever existed like 
when I when we talk about um, the metaverse that Facebook is trying to create, yes, you know, everyone older than like twenty nine or maybe even twenty five uh, is freaking out about this stupid you know thing that he's trying to create a virtual reality. The people who are younger, they're already living it in so many ways. Yeah. This is like the next step. They would be happy to. And like the idea of virtual reality um, with pornography is starting to go, is starting to skyrocket. Once you can cheaply record video in, with stereo, whatever you call it, stereophonic lenses or whatever, you're going to have, and, and once the kind of VR headsets become cheap enough, um, you're going to have this whole physical like i still want the physical sensations right i still need yes, that i still right. want that i still crave that i can't get past the body but i'm gonna do all these things to pretend like the body doesn't matter i'm gonna uh, whether it's um you know something mechanical or whether it's something electronic or something digital it doesn't matter but it's still like it's still it's such a great lie behind all this stuff and so I, I knew this kid in particular was super woke. Like, I mean, like, he, this, he's the poster child for it. So I, his parents asked me, you know, what would you say to him? And so I just said, you know, this is what I would say. Um, have you ever heard that phrase, be colorblind? And they're like, oh, he hates that phrase. Because that's like in the 90s, the phrase was be colorblind. Like, don't see color, just see people. Right. Right. And then the phrase now is like, no, you don't be colorblind because that's like pretending like you don't see me as a black man or as a white man or whatever, yes. right? And so it's like you're covering up, in the words of the office, we don't cover up ignorance with more ignorance, right? And it's like that's exactly what you're doing. You're pretending like all I see are persons, and you're denying the incarnational substantial reality of this particular person. So it's like I'm, I'm playing, I'm abstracting, and it's like, no, you're not. You're pretending to abstract, yes. but in the end, you're covering up it, with more ignorance. And that's why I think the best thing in the world is the Bible calling the sexual act to know, right? Adam yes. knew his wife. And it's like now yes. we're, we're running towards ignorance so that we can get all the carnality without the knowledge. I love that insight. You're shining a bright light here. And, and I want to I loop back to what I was saying earlier that what is at stake here is not only the natural understanding of things, but the supernatural understanding of yeah. things. Because grace perfects nature, and that biblical word know, Adam knew his wife Eve, it's the same word Jesus uses when he says, this is eternal life, that we would know the one true God. <laughs> that, that, is ast that is astounding, that we would know the one true God. Well, how can we know the one true God? He, he's far beyond what we could ever know, and yet he comes down to our level, which brings us back to the body, back to the incarnation. So often we think religion is a flight from the body to reach God, but Christianity represents the exact opposite movement. It is God taking on a body to reach us, and this is what drives the demons mad. Uh, th this is where all their diabolic fury comes out. It is aimed at the body. The, the, the fallen angels cannot stomach the idea. Well, they don't have a stomach. That's part of the point. They cannot bear the thought that God would take flesh and that flesh would be raised higher than the angels. 
that's what the, the, the demons are freaking out about. And that's why they hate the body. And they want us to hate our bodies as well. And that's where we are. We are, we are, we are hell bent here on, on saying matter doesn't matter. Matter does matter. It's called the incarnation. It's called Christianity. It's called being human. Yeah. I remember a story some years ago where a guy uh, wrote a letter to me, really nasty letter. And he, he, was, he was really mad that I convicted his wife that they shouldn't be using contraception. He, he said, how dare you insinuate that where I put my sperm has anything to do with my love for my wife? And what he was saying was, you know, ejaculating in a condom has no bearing whatsoever on whether I love my wife or not. I can put my sperm, doesn't matter what I do with my sperm. I still love my wife spiritually. And I, I, I thought in my response to him, I didn't actually say this, but I thought to, <laughs> well, I'm sure your wife would have a problem if you put your sperm inside your neighbor. <laughs> that bears on your love for her. Where you put your sperm matters. And let us remember how we are saved. We are saved by his body and blood. Nothing else saves us. What is the purpose of the incarnation if God could have saved us just spiritually? Why did his son have to suffer and die bodily? What is the purpose of the bodily resurrection if the body doesn't mean anything? This is the war we're in right now. It is a war between the idea that the body means nothing and the body reveals ultimate meaning. That's the war. Christianity proclaims that the body reveals ultimate meaning and the diabolic lie is that the body is meaningless. And we have to, we have to pick sides here. What side are we on? Is the body meaningless or does the body reveal ultimate meaning? I was listening to recently was um, these two Christian women who were talking about some, uh, a famous Christian author. She wrote a book, Untamed. It's the, it was the number one best-selling author or best-selling book until the George Floyd incident where then more race issues took over the number one spot. Um, but her book was – she was like a Christian mommy blogger and then she realized that she wasn't living her best life. And she was conforming herself too much to the other people's views and patriarchy. And she ended up um, getting to know a female soccer player. And then they had an affair. And then she left. They both left their spouses and, and are now, I, I don't know, they're together. I don't know if they're married, whatever. But this story was called, or the book is called Untamed. And it is about the incredible relief that she feels walking away from her stymied world of confessional Christianity, you know, evangelicalism, whatever. Yes. And these two women were talking and they said, well, you know, like, this is amazing. Like, of course you do. You feel, you probably feel a tremendous amount of relief because you are no longer obeying the laws of morality. Like you have, your whole culture around you is telling you what you're do you just need to follow and the and the book is they were reading passages out of it and it was really insane how much he was telling you like you are your god basically over and over the yeah. selfhood yeah. is the god the god the goddess within whatever and um she was using explicitly christian language to deify one's interior passions and then i'm juxtaposing that with reading romans cuz i'm preparing um a, a thing for a catholic protestant um class that i do 
And you're just reading so much about St. Paul in Romans 7 and 8 about you have to put to death the deeds of the flesh and the passions with their death. And the, the idea of, of this moral life is, uh, that, that God is calling you to is rigorous, not in and of itself. Like it's, it's not meant to be a, like the, the worldly discipline of a, of a stoic where it's like, I conquered my passions, hear me roar kind of thing. Correct. It is so that we can give ourselves away in complete self-surrender, self-possessed, love like i'm giving myself ultimately to god and and you know because of my love for god through my neighbor and i don't know how to love if i have no self control or self possession and it was fascinating because that night last night i read um i read to my kids every night and one of them uh, were going through the story of king arthur and do you know how merlin died no merlin the wizard died because a young beautiful woman seduced him and he like just was around the court, and he's like, "Hey, girl!" Like he <laughs> he had lost all his discipline. Wow! And he pursued her. I think her name was Vivian. I might be confused, um, but I think it was Vivian. And she he pursued her, and she, he she convinced him to teach her all his dark or all of his magic. And she already knew a little bit of magic herself. And then she used it against him, uh, put him, sealed him in a box. And buried him half alive until he was dead, like buried wow. him alive basically, and uh, and this this notion and my daughters were like, wait, what? No, what? Wait, is Merlin the magician? Is that guy dead? And, and they're just sitting there staring at me. And then I, the the next story is the story of Sir Pelleas and how the Lady of the Lake gives him a necklace, and anyone who wears it, you instantly fall in love with. So this woman he meets falls in love with him. Then she he gives it to her because he didn't know the magical gift. And then he falls in love with her, and then she begins abusing him. And my daughter could not understand this. And she was like, but he had no – and he begins to lose everything, right, and even his honor. He gives up his whole honor, and his friends come to him, the other other knights of the round table, and they're like, dude, like, okay, don't do it for your own honor. Do it for the honor of Sir King – of King Arthur and the round table. And he said uh, in in the children's book, I don't care about anyone else's honor, even my own. And he he has so given himself over to this, and my daughters were losing their mind over this understanding. Like, but he didn't choose it; he didn't do it. And it's like, yeah, but he still like this is life. Life is unfair. Yes. Yes. Life life happens. So that's what these stories are meant to understand. But it's like, but there is something honorable in the fight that he realized he had to embrace dishonor, and he felt free in embracing it because then he pursued whatever he wanted. There's that relief, that release of, I no longer have to obey these damn moral laws. Get them out of here. I can give in. And the giving in is a release. Like I know for a fact as a married man, it was so difficult for us to, to choose NFP, to refrain. It was so incredible. When my wife is ovulating, that's when she wants to have sex the most. But, you know, with weighty reason, here I am talking forever, but like you have to discern this. And it's like, yes, it would be easy to contracept. Yes. It would be so, it would be a relief, but therein isn't the moral law. The more like the, the, that which is inscribed in my human heart because of the fall is like, yeah, but you know what? These other things like Matt Fratt in your interview with him, he said, uh, well, can't we have both? Can't we have the beautiful, loving relationship? And I want it both. I want also the hedonistic, uh, you know, embrace and all that stuff. And it's like this is this is the thing. This is the war 
of the flesh and the spirit. It doesn't mean that the body is bad, but it does mean it needs to be constantly given over to grace, constantly yielded, purified, as you said in the beginning of the show. I would phrase it this way. It's, it's, a, it's a confusion of real freedom with license. Yeah. And there is, I, I remember when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s and, you know, all the, the rules were put on me about sexual morality. And I remember feeling, I'll put this in quotes, feeling liberated. And there is a sense of liberation when as a teenage boy, I started dating this girl and we became sexually active and there was a sense of liberation. I am tossing off the oppressive shackles of my Catholic upbringing, and I'm indulging my passions without any restraint. And I felt free for a time. I felt free for a time. And I remember, I remember realizing when I was not free, what I was calling freedom was actually slavery. It was Lent, and, and my conscience was kicking in, and I said to my girlfriend, I think we should give up sex for Lent. And she agreed, and I'll just back up and say, I acknowledge that you're supposed to give up sin all the time, not just for Lent. Uh, but this is where I was at this stage of my life, and my girlfriend agreed, and I only lasted for three days. And after three days, I was like, um, can we give up chocolate instead? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure I want to give up sex for Lent. And, and I realized I am not free. I am in chains. I can't say no to my desires. And so here's the point. True freedom is not liberty to indulge my compulsions. It is liberation from my compulsion to indulge. And to get to that point of being liberated from the compulsion to indulge takes us right into that war that you're talking about, that, that tension between between the the law of life and the law of death that's within us, uh, and Paul puts these in terms of of following the lead of the flesh and following the lead of the spirit, which does not mean spirit good, body bad. Uh, it's very important that we understand it that way. But I I have compassion for the woman who wrote that book because uh, and what was the name of the book again? Untamed. Untamed. Yeah, let me Google. I have compassion for her because I bet you, the brand of Christianity she grew up with was what I would call the starvation diet. Yeah, which is your desires are bad; they're only going to get you in trouble. You got to repress all that, follow all these rules, and you'll be a good, upstanding Christian citizen. You can only do that so long. You know, you can only starve yourself so long before what I call the fast food gospel starts looking very attractive. And if those are the only two choices, starve myself, starve my desires, starve my passions, or go to the fast food, and by that I mean the culture's promise of immediate gratification, if those are your only two choices, well, give me the chicken nuggets, man, because I'm hungry. But what I've learned from John Paul II is there's another way to see and there's another way to think. And Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a wedding feast. Yeah. Christianity is for hungry people. And we, we have to not, not, the goal is not to repress our passions, but to redeem our passions by the grace of God so that we come to hunger for what we really hunger for, right? Fast food tastes good going down, but man, it's going to make you sick. 
So that woman who wrote that book, she's in the stage of feeling liberated from starving herself. And now she's feeling that the, the joy, the, the momentary pleasure of eating the, the chicken, chicken nuggets, right? But that grease and that sodium is going to catch up to her and she's going to spend the father's inheritance and she's going to get to the bottom of the barrel. God willing, she's going to come back to the father's house and say, I, I, I believe the feast that I'm really looking for, you can provide for me, right? That's, that's the kind of trajectory of conversion right there. She, uh, she is nicknamed the patron saint of female empowerment because wow. she still keeps it within that Christian milieu. But this is all, a, a, and I believe her story is, is a super sad story, like you were saying. Like her husband, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, serially cheated on her. Like Mercy just adultery Jesus. after, and you know, there's those elements where you're constantly, you know, all of these. Basically, she realizes that she's killing her own, you know, voice, numbing herself, all that stuff. I always find it interesting because the the one the one thing I don't understand about the deconstructing discipleship culture. Have you ever heard of that? The deconstruction movement. Uh. I, I, so maybe not in the context you're using that term. So say more. So it's essentially they're deconstructing their own discipleship in Christ. All these evangelicals and you know former former evangelicals, former fundamentalists, whatever. They're you know essentially yep. it's like the 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 main way of looking at it is uh, you know I'm a devout Christian. I'm taught to hate gays. That gays are the devil. That gays are pure evil. Then in college, I met a gay person who was nicer than all my Christian friends right, and right. actually showed me that, you know, caring monogamy and all this stuff. And therefore, I began questioning one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. It all unraveled. And now, um, you know, I'm, I'm an anti-Christian, whatever. I'm, I've rejected my discipleship. It's a huge movement within evangelicalism. Yeah. Huge. And it, it wouldn't – I think the Catholic movement is just – yeah, I'll go to mass once a year when I'm at home, but I don't care about anything else otherwise. Like, there's nothing there for them to reject in the last seventy years. But um, you just you just hear this, and and it fascinates me at a philosophical level because it's just like um, when Khrushchev <laughs> to take this a very wide cultural look uh, when Khrushchev released all the stuff that Stalin had done. All these Marxists in the West were like, oh, my gosh, it's abhorrent. I am now a liberal, and I now reject yes. Marxism. Yes, and, yes. And the famous uh, Notre Dame uh, – he would become a Notre Dame philosopher. Alistair McIntyre was like, how, how do you do that? How, how do you be a Marxist? And he was a Marxist at the time. He's like, how do you get to be a Marxist and jump to an entire – like Marxism is the critique of liberalism. And you just jumped – now you're liberal now because some guy killed some – like millions of Ukrainians, right? So how do you how do you do that? And he spent years trying to figure out how literally tens of thousands of intellectuals suddenly jumped ship and became capitalist Americans. You know, like how, how do you do that? And for him, that was the book After Virtue, where it's like yeah, you've come to the like basically us as as modern liberals, right? In our liberal democracies, we inhabit two worlds as devout Christians. We inhabit the Christian world with the Christian ideal and the Christian moral principles and the Thomistic this, the Aristotelian that, and the Augustinian these things. But very tenuously do we hold on to these things because we are saturated in a superculture that exists from sea to shining sea yep. that is every bit as anti, or not every bit, but it is largely anti all of those moral principles. So then we just, to me, the interesting part is how people then one day wake up and say, all of this stuff I'm rejecting and all of these things over here that I rejected, 
I'm now adopting. And, uh, yeah, the, the reason why I love Alistair McIntyre is he puts the language to all of that stuff. But what was yesterday's cultural Marxist is today's evangelical. Can I, can I segue here to a commentary on this book that we've just recently released by Carol Wojtyla called God is Beauty? Because he addresses this in this retreat. Carol Wojtyla gave a retreat to artists in the early 60s called God is Beauty. And he, he diagnoses, I think, very precisely the problem that you're putting your finger on. And he calls it moral, minim, moral minimalism. So, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens. <laughs> okay. Can we, I, I just, I know we have, I know we've got it. We, ha, we ha, yeah. have some copy. My gosh. I am obsessed with Athletic Greens. I am absolutely obsessed with our next partner who has a product that I literally use every day. I started taking um, Athletic Greens because the pitch sounded very cool. This year I wanted to just embrace embrace health again. You know, uh, that's just my big thing. And I so it's one of the main reasons why I did Athletic Greens. And we and we uh, were able to meet with them and hear uh, a little bit of like what they're about. A couple other podcasts that are on par. They sent us these starter packs. Yeah. Which are awesome. 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This is what I do. I come downstairs. I open the kennel for my dog. Dog comes out. I go right over, fill up. My glass of water, 12 ounces, cold water, dump one scoop of Athletic Greens in there, and it supplements for the whole day. It's awesome because the stuff they use is sourced from whole food ingredients, made in New Zealand. It tastes good. It's a powder that you dump in your drink. You can take it on the go. All of my health care regimens have fallen to the wayside, except for Athletic Greens. That should tell you something. <laughs> I was a bit skeptical at first just because I was like, am I going to be peeing very expensive pee? Like That's what I'm, I'm wondering. So tons of people t- take some some like type of a multi multi vitamin, but it's important to choose one with high quality in- ingredients that your body's gonna like actually absorb. I can feel that happen like immediately afterwards. And I've been I'm sleeping a little bit better. Everyone, I'm begging you to buy it so they will keep giving it to us. I don't even know what <laughs> going to. And, I mean, like I, like honestly, God, I'm not kidding. Um, we're gonna like both Aaron and I are gonna keep doing this after the problem with these sponsors we start getting them because we're doing an ad and then i end up spending all the ad money on buying more products so So here's a great thing this stuff is lifestyle uh friendly whether you eat paleo uh, keto vegan dairy free gluten free Mm -hmm. it's fine it's got less than one gram of sugar uh no gmos which is very important for me and my family no nasty chemicals or artificial anything it's really good stuff so uh, this is what we're going to say. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I have the travel packs. I will be using the travel packs. You don't have to refrigerate the travel packs. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash foxes. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash foxes. Move over, Joe Rogan, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thank you to Athletic Greens for sponsoring this episode. Of Catching Foxes and My Body. So good. It's so good. That we have reduced religion to morality. Yeah. This is incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous for us. When we reduce Christianity to moral thou shalt nots, right? John Paul II says in this retreat to artists, of course he wasn't John Paul II when he gave it. He was Carol Wojtyla, Archbishop Carol Wojtyla. But he says, when we reduce religion to a list of things I must do or doctrines I must believe, he says, we are, we are looking at religion from a merely human perspective. And we must, he says, we must, must, must 
look at religion from God's perspective, from this divine plan, which is a plan to fulfill super abundantly the deepest desires of the human heart. And when we realize the great lengths that God himself is going to, to meet and fulfill super abundantly the deep cry of the human heart, the I musts come at the very end. What I must do is respond to the love that is offered to me, right? Mm. And morality becomes, here's my own image. This is not Wojtyla's image, but my own image is morality means dancing in step to the divine love song. But if you don't hear the music, if that music has not reached your heart, then the dance steps can only be dry, boring, and technical and have no real meaning for you. You know, it's like dancing by numbers. Put your foot here. Don't put your foot there. Yeah. Well, you got to turn on the music. You got to hear the music. You got to hear the love song. And to the extent that you hear the beauty of the divine love song, and it is setting your heart ablaze, you want to learn how to dance in step with it. That is a totally different game. That is a totally different paradigm than here are the rules, here are the dance steps, you must follow them, and you're like, well, why can't I put my foot over there? Because I said so. Yeah. But if you, if you hear the music and you dance out of step with it, you're like, oh, I know for myself I just danced out of step because I hear the music. And I want to stay in step with the music. We have to share the music with the world. And the music, if I can put it this way, the soundtrack of Christianity is the song of songs. It's the, it's the great erotic song of scripture that saint after saint after saint has turned to to say, this is the essence of biblical faith, the lover and the beloved and the call to union. And prayer means learning how to open the cry of my heart. That woman who wrote that book, Untamed, there is a desperate cry of her heart to love and be loved. And she's taken that cry to love and be loved to all the wrong places and all the wrong faces, as the old country song has it, looking for love in all the wrong places. The the call of Christ is bring that cry of your heart to me. Bring that desperate need to love and be loved to me. And let me sing to you of the eternal love I have for you. And the more we hear that love song, uh, I know I sound like a broken record, um, but the more we hear that love song, the more we want to dance and step with it. If we don't hear the love song, it's just moralism. Yeah. And, it, and moralism will bankrupt, and it has bankrupt, bankrupted Christianity. Yeah. Christopher, can I add, too? Please, he, mentions, he mentions at this part in the book he's, he, he, that, that following of rules. Then religion just becomes an act of not failing. It just yeah. becomes yeah. a lifestyle of just hanging. You're just hanging on to yeah. not do wrong. And for me, the image would be like learning a language to communicate, to, to learn, learning a language to get by. And learning a language to be poetic, they're different. There, there's a difference, and, and, and learning a language just to communicate, or like learning 
an instrument, you know, it's like learning an instrument just to, to play a song or learning an instrument to, to express yourself. Yeah. There's a difference. And one of them, you're just hanging on to get by. You're just, you're just fulfilling the quota. The other one, you're actually, you're, you're becoming more um, illuminated and actually communicating with it. And so then, and then, then, then that's when he brings in the Beatitudes. And yeah, it's, which it's I loved pretty, in that yeah. book. It is incredible. Yeah, I mean, going right along with that, like, we just got a keyboard. Uh, one of my coworkers, Mary Jo, uh, was like, hey, do you want a keyboard? And I was like, yes, I'm not musical. So we bring it over and we connect it into my house, and I have four little kids, and they were all, you know, banging away at it. And then I walked up and I started to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And they were mesmerized. Yeah. That's a song yeah. they knew. And they looked up at me and they said, you know how to play the piano? And I said, no, I memorized the notes of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Right? Like, that's what I feel like your, your analogy. It's like you're, you learn how to play a song. It's like I memorized where to put my fingers and right. how to hit it. But I don't know how to play the piano. I don't know how to make music with this thing. Right. And he has this amazing line right at the beginning of that chapter on um, the danger of moral minimalism where he says, okay, so sin is breaking a commandment of God. And he said, but if we don't develop in ourselves at least something of the eight Beatitudes in our heart, in our will, then we risk continually finding ourselves on the brink of sin and committing that sin very easily. And I think of, of chastity as playing the piano, in ter- uh, you know, learning the art of, of the piano, but abstinence, lost in abstinence as just, I mean, like how many of us conceived of mortal sin as like, all right, if I just don't look at porn or I don't masturbate or I don't have sex with my girlfriend today, like yep. we keep and we keep hovering like the how far is too far kind yep. of mentality is like how much to the edge can I go of sexual arousal before I can't go to communion and have to wait in my pew and as actually happened to me my mom will ask me in front of everyone why aren't you going to communion you know it's uh. like, well uh, there's so many reasons right now three of them <laughs> are how I want to murder you for saying that out loud but um. But, right, like, that notion, like, how many people have this habit of, like, okay, here's a rule. I broke the rule. Or how close can I get to not breaking the rule? Or how, you know, I mean, we do this, the, the cold calculus, all the time in our heads. And it's like, yeah, okay, but you still don't have the beatitude sunk deep in your heart. That's like, right. To be pure of heart means to will one thing, to be unalloyed, to be not of this world and, and not of, like, I'm balancing between, like, how many people think? Uh, and it is a Protestant purity culture comment um, where it's it's basically like sex is dirty and wrong. Save it for someone you love. But when you're married, it's a freaking free for all. Yeah. And yep. no one understands like they get carried away in this notion of like, hey, self-discipline still matters. Like, that's why I think NFP is not just um, I, I hear a lot of people in, in more traditional circles critiquing NFP. But I think NFP to me has been the gateway of virtue because it's like, hey, we really cannot be – we really have to refrain. Like we're, this is a grave, serious reason. It isn't just I want to space every three years. This is a serious reason, her health, whatever. And then it's like, okay, well now, crap, I just got to figure stuff out. <laughs> right? Like I, we, we, you, can't, you can't do it. And, it. and you can't just look at porn and masturbate. Like you actually have to have self-control. And you can't just do this self-control thing like you do a New Year's resolution. It becomes Christological because it's a sacrifice that I'm making for this thing called us 
not this thing called me or just you. Because it, once it involves sex, it's a we all the way down, yeah. and that is funny. Yep. But it's a it's it's all it's it's a we it's a we thing that could potentially be more we's. And That's so right. within that scenario, like oh my goodness, like I'll, all we have been doing most of humanity is memorizing the song instead of being able to play it ourselves. Instead of being Make like music. The, in, yeah, instead of making music with our freedom, with the freedom of excellence, with the and and I just think of like the great father survey pink hairs like all of my moral thinking comes revolves around his great book the sources of christian ethics but just that notion of like we conceive of morality as as choosing between right and wrong good and evil in this one instance and he's like it's about choosing the good with the very best of ourselves and becoming better in it i i want to unfold this this musical analogy more because we have a musician right here and i i am privileged oh mike oh yeah i am privileged i mean this sincerely mike i get to hear your music at our events and i just like you've heard my talks a million times i've heard these same songs that you play at our events a million times but i am struck continually and repeatedly by the beauty that is flowing out of your guitar and your vocal cords and your harmonica and the years and years of discipline and sacrifice the high price you have paid so that i can be blessed by that beauty it is real and and forgive me for going all brian adams on you but you you can't tell me it's not (laughs) worth fighting for you can't tell me it's not worth dying for Everything I do, I do it for you. It's it's worth it. It's worth it. And we're not all called to be uh, professional musicians like Mike Mangione is, but we are all called to be professional lovers. That's the gospel call. That's the human call. Love one another as I have loved you. And the discipline that is required here is very much like the discipline of the musician. The goal is to discipline one's body. I mean, to play a musical instrument, that's what you have to do. You have to discipline your body. And you have to discipline your mind. And you have to have a goal, like, I want to be able to make beautiful music like that. Uh, And the goal here is, I want to learn how to love rightly. I want to learn how to love as Jesus loves. I want to learn how to love freely. I want to learn how to love totally. I want to learn how to love faithfully. I want to learn how to love fruitfully. I want to learn how to love so that my whole life gets aligned with the true, the good, and the beautiful, so that we're making beautiful music. Uh, The analogy I often use is anybody can bang on a piano keyboard and make meaningless noise, but to, to, to... a concert pianist can spontaneously tickle those keys and make beautiful music that lifts our soul to the heavens. But behind the concert pianist is is the, the life of discipline. But it's a creative discipline for the sake of the true, the good, and the beautiful. The banging on the piano is, is unchastity. Uh, and if you bring that into your marriage, if you just say, we're not going to play the piano, we're not going to play the piano, we're not going to play the piano, we're not going to play the piano... Now we're married. Now we get to play the piano, but all you're doing is banging on the keys, even though you're married now. Uh, It's making meaningless noise. 
the the wedding night. The wedding might, night might just be Mary had a little lamb, right? With with just three notes. But keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And you will make beautiful music. Mike, sh- shine some light on this as a musician. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> How many years? You know, they say about guitar, it's not how many hours you've or no, it's not how many years you played, it's how many hours. Right? Like when you think about all the time that you've put in, because I can say I played piano for years because I literally memorized it when I was twelve and I have not forgotten it. Now I'm thirty nine. I'll turn forty on May twenty fifth, and now that you two know, I expect a present. Um <laughs> But uh you, you know, you think about the hours. The constant hours. I mean, Aristotle said, a man is to a good man what a harpist is to a good harpist. And to be a good harpist means you've you've got the skills, but also the music goes from outside of you to within you, right? The, yeah. the, the chords, the progression, the harmonies, the math, even, you know, all of it becomes a part of you. Yeah, it, it is. It is really, it's a point of needing to break through it's I, I, for some reason, the analogy of water skiing always pops in my head and, and here's, <laughs> here's why water skiing is, is fantastic. Once you get above the water, but before that you are subjected to whatever that boat is pulling you through <laughs> and it is just hanging on. And there's some times where it takes a little longer, but, and, and it's just like this complete force against you. And you can feel yourself rising above it. But once you get on, you just float. And it's amazing that what was so forceful against you can be something so freeing to glide above. Mm. You are describing and... my honeymoon night. Go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was terrifying. It was awful. Yeah. But then nothing but gliding. Yeah. Okay. It's okay. very spiritual. It's very spiritual, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> But you're you're right, like yeah, and then once once you get to that point where, um, you know, you're on top of it, you, like you're free from the notes. You don't have to you don't have to be restricted by it. Uh, that's when you could really find your voice and really start expressing something. You know, it's like yeah. I've worked with a lot of different musicians, and I'm saying all this to stay within the analogy of life. I've worked with <laughs> a lot of musicians. Um, you know, and, and kind of like the, the pinnacle would be Berkeley musicians, right? And, or like classical musicians. And when I've, I've played with a lot of classical musicians, and the one thing that's been, been interesting is these are, these are musicians that are respected for their years of study and their ability to play what's on the page and, and play precisely and, and with great, great effect. But, but once you ask them to get off the page, they're like a fish out of water is take the page away. And what do you have? You really don't have anything. And that's not to criticize classical musician, but it's to say that there's actually, you know, understanding the body alone uh, is one thing, but being able to be free to express yourself now I'm back to music, express yourself in a way that's new and, 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 and use the instrument to, to 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 really just explore and communicate something from the heart that's when you're actually gliding on the water and that's when you're actually understanding what love is because if we understand love simply as as i need to provide i need to be here for this without the sacrifice 
then you're not fully understanding the full spectrum of love. If you don't understand sacrifice, then you're, you're not even halfway there. I mean, that's, that's such a huge, huge part of it that I've learned the hard way. That analogy is really interesting when you talk about these people who have achieved a, a huge level of um, technical skill in the classical guitar, yet they still lack the, let's just say, the interior freedom to to be creative with it and to create their own kind of music. You know, it's almost as if, um, and you see this in our sexual lives, right? That our modern culture glorifies technique above all in the absence of love. And when you don't have love and all you have is technique, then you don't have creativity, right? And, uh, and our modern world is upset. I'm a YouTube creator. I'm a creator. I'm a creative like we love, I literally changed my title when people read my bio as a joke to uh, the founder of layevangelist.com to the founder and creative director of layevangelist.com just because it sounded more like what Brandon Vaught did at Word on Fire. And, uh, and you know, I have goals, man. I have goals. I'm going places. The band is going to make it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just think about that. Like these people have the height of this technical skill, but they've they've mastered, truly mastered a technique yet maybe at some level they they are lost in they they're not free they're not creative they've mastered the the steps on the floor to a point where it would right it would humble people but but it, it masquerades as true freedom or, tr- or true creativity it, it reminds me of these um <laughs> guitar hero studs who can play the most complicated song at eight times speed but they can't actually play the guitar you know, it, it, I, I mentioned for my part of the book, I mentioned that that um, uh, uh, what's, uh, Miles Davis quote, which is just brilliant. He says there's there's no wrong notes, only wrong choices after the notes played. So well, that's <laughs> I paraphrase. But the idea that even in the mistake or in the brokenness, we can find ways to perfect it or not perfect it, but at least have it harmonize metaphorically with what we're trying to do. And that, if you can find, if you can be comfortable in your brokenness, in a way, in the proper sense, not glorify it, but be, yeah. but understand it as a means to, 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 to really understand the whole person of who you are, um, and 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 as a way to come closer to the Creator, then you are ultimately free. But if you are trying to cover that up and hide it, then you are you are a slave to what's what you're being sub, you know you're slave to reality um but you know i think a, a biblical example of this is the the older brother in the prodigal son parable who stayed home and followed all the rules but when the celebration came and there was music and dancing he refused to enter the party that's the tragedy of of moral minimalism where we reduce Christianity, we reduce, we reduce being a son of, of God the Father to following rules. The, the tragedy of that is when the party happens, and, and in the parable, that party is the symbol of heaven. Right? The guy who followed all the rules wouldn't enter heaven, wouldn't enter the party. That's tragic. And, and it, it underscores that you have to be in touch with your hungers and your deepest desires to to be attracted to the banquet. <laughs> yeah. This this older brother was following all the rules but he wasn't in, in touch with his deepest longings. So he couldn't see that the celebration was for him too.
Hey everyone, Gomer here, and I want to take a moment to talk to you about a new sponsor to the show, Petrus Development Conference. This conference being held at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida, will have over 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries small and large. Their primary audience is campus ministries, Catholic high schools, Catholic grade schools, Catholic dioceses, and yes, Catholic apostolates. They want you to invest in yourself and your career, as well as your ministry's future. So come and build community with other Catholic fundraisers in a beautiful beach resort location. If you register in March, check this out. You'll be eligible to win a free three-hour consulting package with a Petrus coach. If you register in April, the first 10 people will receive a $40 airport shuttle voucher. Oh, yeah. Fundraising is hard, so let the fine folks at the Petrus Development Conference give you the tools and the community to make it less hard and actually enjoyable and fulfilling. Take a walk on the sunny side of fundraising at the beach in Naples. And listen, I've done tons of these Catholic conferences, and I'm telling you, the ones at a resort on a beach is where you want to be. The Petrus Development Conference 2022 takes place on June 13th to the 15th. And if you sign up today and use the coupon code FOXES, you'll get 50 bucks off your registration. How awesome is that? So click the link in the show notes or head on over to PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Special thanks to Petrus Development for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. And that's the, the point of that book, Untamed, is... She said that she realized she had to divorce her husband and marry this woman because she was not um, – it wasn't about following the rules. She had she had to model the kind of life that she wanted her daughters to see. Like, I am not going to be hemmed in by the choices that others have made for me because I got these kids. They need to see what a person fully alive looks like. Well, and, she's she, there. She's fooling herself. Obviously, she's right. gonna. She's chasing after the pleasures of the world that will never, ever satisfy her yeah. yearning for the infinite. Well, Matt had that. Matt Frad had that amazing story where he talked about his buddy's dad who left his family, thinking this will make me like I'm done. And he went up to Bali, left Australia, went to Bali, yep. and they saw him like ten years later. And he was yep. living with prostitutes. He had a tan. He had, you know, and uh, everyone looked at him like a giant joke. Yep. He was just a giant joke of a man. And to me, this is the the great appeal of Jordan Peterson right now in so many of um, so much of our culture. Like we have consented for men to be little little boys for so long. We've asked them to be non. Um, we've asked them to be nice. Right, be nice. That's the the Christian ideal of a man is just be a nice guy. Yeah. And then you find that these men are, they're stymied in life by this artificial niceness. Yes. Right? This non-virtuous niceness, this paint by number, this dance by number, this rote memorization. And they don't know how to deal. They don't. They think if I'm nice enough, then God will be, the Christian ones, then God will be forced to give me all the things I really want. And what I want is a hot chick who will have hot sex with me and, you know, to be rich, you know, or whatever yep. it is. Yep. And when, when these things are pulled back and it's like, actually, no, what you have to be is a man fully alive. A, a woman doesn't want a nice man. A woman wants a real man, just like a man yes. doesn't want an artificially nice, like the Stepford wives. No man really wants a Stepford wife, right? He doesn't want this automaton who does and says what he wants. He wants a living thing, someone with vitality and he ideas. Wants to, yes. and, 
Something he with wants power, a person. right? He like, wants a female person. Yeah, an adult female person. That's what we want. And <laughs> when you do, it's just amazing to me that we constantly and I think this is the Christian shift so often. Like we 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 see the rules, but we don't see the heart of the lawgiver behind it. That the lawgiver is also the savior, that the lawgiver is also the lover of my soul. And the lawgiver is also the one who made the stars to sing. And we constantly leave the poetry for the sake of, of, of the math. And like Chesterton said, it's not the, it's not the poet who becomes, it's not the artist who becomes insane. It's the mathematician where all he has left is his sanity. And that's what makes it all he has. And it's like this, this, and it becomes a cold calculus. And it's like, you don't even see the person anymore. You, and you, and we lose sight of ourselves in the middle of that. I, I told this one young man, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. And he was complaining to me about about all the things that are wrong with his life and why don't women like me and why don't people notice me and why am I forgotten? And I just looked at him and I said, because you're, you're the nice guy. You don't even know, like, you're, you're not a good man. Mm. Like, you're, you're not. You're just, you're, like, scared of being bad but that's not the same thing as being truly good oh that's a good insight well that it i wish it were mine it is not mine it is nietzsche's and and (laughs) as interpreted by jordan peterson but the whole line is like nietzsche had this line and we've used it a lot of times in the show which to me it, it was me this is me the line was um most men are not good they are cowards and they are afraid of what it would be like to to do evil and for me, growing up in a very good Christian home, a Catholic home, I was scared. I was scared to not be a people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser. I'm the nice guy. I thought if I was in the friend zone long enough, eventually she will find me attractive because all the guys she does find attractive are idiots. You know, and then I didn't, I, I, the whole time I realized she's not looking for another girlfriend with a different kind of dangling genitalia to bring it back full circle because uh, you cannot have a christopher west conversation without the phrase dangling genitalia a handful of times i shouldn't have said handful it's not, Anywho. It's not just the footnote, it's not <laughs> yeah. just the footnote. <laughs> no but uh but, they they don't just want another girlfriend they want someone to go on an adventure with to live life with and so i looked at him and he he looked i'll never forget this guy i love this guy i pray for him all the time he looked at me and he stared at his shoes. He never made eye contact with me for the first hour we were talking. And he just said, but that's all I am. Mm. That's all I am. He's like, come I'm... higher, come higher, brother. Yeah. Yeah. There's an invitation to come higher here. And, and if we're, there's, there's a beautiful honesty there though, where he's, yeah. he's recognizing his weakness. And if he can open that weakness to the one who loves him there, the one who loves him there will call him higher. And it will be grace that brings him there, not self-reliant striving. And that's where that's what screws us when we think the fulfillment of the law comes from our own self-reliant uh, striving. If we do that, we life will teach us over and over again, we don't have what it takes to be the men we're called to be. But when I learn how to open my weakness or to the degree that I learn how to open my weakness to the one who loves me there, knowing I'm loved there is what enables me to become more and more the man I'm meant to be. 
And then everything changes. Wojtyla says in his retreat, if I can quote this, this is Carol Wojtyla, 1962, in this beautiful retreat called God is Beauty, uh, which is the first, it's the first 60 pages of the book is the retreat itself. And then there's a commentary from me. Then there's Wait, some reflections. We, have, have we set up what the book, do, should we give a little backstory? Yeah, I, I, said, I said a little bit about it earlier. Okay, all right. um, but I, I just want to add that there are these beautiful reflections, one of which is from Mike, uh, that, that end the book. And don't we have a discount code or something for your oh, listeners? Oh, we got it. We got it. So uh, the book is called God is Beauty. So what you want to do is use the discount code FOXES at checkout, and you'll get 20% off as many copies of God is Beauty as you'd like, which is awesome. And you have a website. I don't uh, – is it – Go to theologyofthebody.com and click on the store. That's maybe go. the best way to do it. Yeah, that's what it said, but it was like shop.coreproject.com slash product. Yeah, don't, don't do it. Yeah. Go to theologyofthebody.com, click on the store. It'll take you to this book. And and I just want to underscore the the book the 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 heart of the book is the retreat given by Carol Wojtyla in 1962, and it's never been translated in English before until now. Um, it's really exciting that this is this is out now for an English speaking audience. Yeah, this is awesome. But here's the here's the line I wanted to share. He says, "If a person would finally experience religion, not half heartedly, not nearly from the perspective of a sense of obligation." or an additional responsibility that's weighing on me, if a person would experience religion in its fullness from God's perspective, then a fundamental internal revolution, a transformation would take place. The world changes and gains a completely different different meaning. And my position in the world also changes and takes on a different meaning. For as long as I remain the subject of a list of musts, I must do this. I must fulfill this obligation. So long as I'm putting all these weights on myself and I haven't encountered the love that God has for me in my weakness, then I do not have a sense of the meaning of my existence. Powerful words. Yeah. Yeah, because the enemy of Karavoitia Later in life, it was so much consequentialism and utilitarianism. He wants to attack, I shouldn't say later in life, but he wants to attack these false notions of, of to use, right? How we use one another and all yes. this stuff. And utilitarianism and consequentialism are often brought up in his moral encyclicals and proportionalism because they are robbing us of our personhood, but also they're robbing us of moral nobility. But at the same time, that Kantianism, right? That, that other side of it, that moral law as, um, as nothing other, or the morality as nothing other than my duty to obey a law, and right. that's it, full stop. Right. It also right. dehumanizes and desacralizes the law. It strips it of its beauty. And beauty... It, it, absolutely. Then, the only it thing beauty. that matters is not the quality or the beauty of a moral life well-lived. The only thing that matters is casuistry. In this one instance, did I obey justice and that's it. And, um, you know, the great Survey Pinkers, when he talks about morality that is just like this Kantian, this Kantian um, obedience to duty, he says, think about everything that gets left out. Friendship, love, romance, yes. all that left out. Freedom, excellence, virtue, all that is left out. Suffering. He said yep. suffering becomes nothing other than, uh, you know, cases of anesthesia. 
right? Like, uh, and, and cases of euthanasia, like, when can I ease suffering? And then that's it. And he's like, and people don't realize that an experience of suffering can overthrow an entire life of moral virtue in just a few weeks or vice versa. It can overthrow a, a life of atheism. And all of a sudden I've encountered profound, acute personal suffering. And there in the, I mean, how many people's stories is there in the depths of God forsakenness? I found Christ crucified and he loved me. And there I came home. Um, one of the reasons why um, when um, Bill reached out to me about having you on the show and you guys talked about this or he was mentioning God is beauty. And, you know, me and Luke are big fans of Hans von Balthasar and uh, the theological aesthetics and all this stuff. And we've talked about it a handful of times. But this notion of, you know, Bishop Barron, right, the, the, the way of beauty is going to be in a culture that calls Catholic morality bigoted and believes in, in relativism. Your truth is not my truth. How do we woo them? How do we attract them? How do we win them? Yep. We win them by starting, not ending, but starting with beauty. And when he sent me that email, the same day, I had two separate conversations with people who were entirely converted to Christ because of beauty, because they awesome. sat in a beautiful Catholic church and they looked around and they said, if God isn't present here, then there is no God. And they had no idea about altar and tabernacle. They just looked and they said, this, this place screams out like generations of people who have faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. And they've, they've built a pillar of, of stone and marble and gold because they believe that this God is actually real. Just the other day, this guy said he was Protestant. He said, I just, I just want to be Catholic. I want to be Catholic. And I said, why is that? And he said, yeah, I went to my stepdad's funeral and I walked into your church and my church is not particularly beautiful, but it's still shaped like a Catholic church. You know, it's cruciform. It's got an altar up front. And he just said, I just looked around and was like, man, I wish I was Catholic. I want this. This Mm. is beautiful. You know, I'm like, golly, where were you 70 years ago? When when we were, you know, drywalling over our sacred art, you know, I was just in another church where they're peeling back the literal beige paint that went over the ceiling in in, uh, the Church of the Epiphany in Pittsburgh, in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. I did a men's conference out there. And uh, I took pictures of where you can see the beige paint still covering the ornate, beautiful, beautiful painting that went before. What were they thinking when they covered that over? There was an article that was sent to me by a, a rad trad, and, and I'll leave it at this. But uh, he sent me this article, and he was like, I'm not saying the whole church. He, he's he's not really a rad trad, but he, a traditionalist Catholic. And he's saying, I'm not saying the whole church is given over to this in the modern era. He said, but this is symptomatic of something demonically wrong. And yes. he said that yes. um, someone bought a church that used to be owned by a group of Franciscans. And they went in, and they knew that there was some sort of artwork on a wall that was painted on the wall um, that had been drywalled over and they knew it was somewhere in the, what are they called? Con- confectory, confect, whatever the, the, the cafeteria. And they start to crack open the drywall in this one pillar where they think it is big area. And they do. And they find out that, uh, what do you call them? A relief where it's a painting, but also yeah. has statues kind of coming out of it. And not only did they drywall over this exquisite work of art that any church would be blessed to have, but before they put up the drywall, the Franciscans went in with a hammer and smashed the face of every saint and angel depicted in it. What the hell? Right. And this is this is the me to me, like, 
I'm like, okay, I understand that maybe you wanted to have the altar in the central, so you moved it away, and it's no longer a Raridas. And now we know we're facing each other, and it adds this different. Co- I can understand some of these, like liturgical, sacred art, sacred. But the smash, like the French revolutionary psychopath, yeah. anti-clerical, smashing. Yeah, like, it's but that's what you do when you hate the body. Yep, you're. Oh, 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 oh. You have yes. to. You have to. You can't yes. endure the sacred in art. Correct. You can't endure the depiction of Correct. angels and saints. Correct. If you, if you ultimately despise the body, and it's just tragic that it was it was Franciscans, which reminds me of a of the. The passage in this retreat by Carol Wojtyla that makes the whole thing worth it. I mean, it, the whole thing is worth it. But this <laughs> one passage alone, if that's all there was, I actually sp- I spent $500 to get a private translation of this retreat six years ago when I first discovered it existed. And it was worth it because of this passage where he says he's, he's telling the story of when he was a young priest okay. studying in Rome. And he went to the Diocletian Baths in Rome, where all of these masterpieces of Greek sculpture were housed, and and these are the you know these are the nude the nude statues of these idealized human bodies carved into marble by the Greek masters, and Wojtyla, being a good Catholic priest, ran the other way and thought it was an occasion of sin. No, that's not what he did. <laughs> he said. I studied these masters of Greek sculpture for hours. And he said, I labored. It took such great effort. And I wanted to understand what these masters of sculpture, who were looking for perfect beauty in the human body, what were they really desiring? And he says, I came to understand the gospel anew. And I came to understand the gospel better. Because I realized these masters of sculpture were yearning for the manifestation of perfect beauty in the human body. And then I realized this is what Christianity offers. Perfect (laughs) beauty has been manifested in the body. It's called the incarnation. (laughs) In the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. And it's always male and female together that reveals this divine beauty. And, and it's, so, it's so contrary to the way most people in the pews, and, and here I mean the people who actually care and come to church, it's so contrary to the way most people think. We, we've, we've angelized everything. We've excarnated everything. We've been evangelized by a Gnostic culture that says matter doesn't matter. Well, let me contrast that with G.K. Chesterton, who says, at the very soul of Christianity is the body. The very soul of of Christian faith is the body. (laughs) What saves, what is at the source and summit of everything we believe? It's the body of Christ given up for us. This is our faith, faith in the incarnation. When we really let that sink in, that the body has the capacity to tell and reveal the divine story itself, ultimate meaning itself. It changes everything, and we realize the war we're really part of. The war we're part of is that God desires to reveal his beauty through the human body, and the enemy desires to, the proper word here is profane the body, 
to profane the body so that it can no longer reveal the divine beauty. That's the war we're facing. And every day we make choices and and face attitudes in ourselves that pivots us in one direction or the other. And very good-hearted people are getting very misled in the modern world by a pornographic culture that we, we end up giving the devil his own clay, right? That, that The body and sex belongs to the devil. No, the devil does not have his own clay. He takes God's clay. God's the one who created us male and female and called the two to become one flesh. And God said, behold, it is very good. The enemy takes God's clay and twists it up. And we think twisted clay should be thrown away. And Jesus says, no, twisted clay should be untwisted. That's what the death and resurrection, the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. Amen. Amen. So uh, the website where people can get your book, godisbeautybook.com, is a, is a link straight to it. And if people there go, go there, um, so you got tobinstitute.org, all this great stuff that you guys are doing. Um, can I ask you a quick question? What, what was JP2 doing? What was going on in the artist? Like, why, why did he give this in, what do you say, it was 62? 62, yeah. Yeah, I mentioned in the introduction to the book that this was an act of resistance of communism. That Wojtyla knew the way you maintain a culture that will resist tyranny is through good art through artists who understand how to convey the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's how you keep a a culture alive in the face of tyranny. It's no coincidence. I mean, the the communists and the Nazis knew exactly what they were doing when they were in control of Poland, when they attacked and brutally murdered the the artists. Why, why, Why does a tyrant want to get rid of the culture's artists? Because or, he sucked as an artist. Oh, he was terrible. <laughs> Stupid Hitler. Oh. If only he could have made better circles, he wouldn't have killed millions of people. Well, there's a point to that. <laughs> um, I mean, he's after the, the tyrants are after the artists, the good artists. Yeah. I mean, they also want to manipulate the artists to turn art. Are you, are you, implying, are you implying that there were artists that survived, that were still living, that had a question? Wait a minute. What does this mean? About me as an artist. <laughs> well, if, if oh, I'm, I'm not good enough for Hitler, huh? <laughs> uh, I don't think you Come should on, think guys. of it in that question. No, no, no. Come on, tell I me. I get it. I get it. Yeah. All right, I'll leave. I'll leave. <laughs> All right, on to Brickling. No, but it is it is incredible, like his rhapsodic theater of the word, right? Like, yes. here's these huge Polish plays that we can't put on because they've stripped of, stripped us of our theaters. So we will strip the Polish place to its most essential core right. that only one, maybe two people can deliver in a crowded apartment. And they stood there and they delivered. And that's why, like, I love the jeweler shop. And the introduction that his friend wrote um, to the jeweler shop was so important in my life, like that introduction to the, to the tiny little book, because he, he talked about the rhapsodic theater of the word. Like, he didn't have anything. He didn't have a stage. He didn't have a backdrop. All he had was like a kitchen in an apartment with everyone in the family room. And he had to, and he knew everyone in that room. I mean, think about this knew to attend this play was death if the Nazis found out. Yep. Yep. Like, how insane is that? But cultural resistance is the long game 
That's you know, right. t- taking out like uh, like the Ukrainians today, like doubling down on the Ukrainian culture is the way away from Russia. Right. Yes. And the way, honestly, also the way away from uh, Europe that will just modernize them with modern pop culture. But like to dive into the heart of who you are as a people for the flowers to grow where they're planted. Like he saw that this was the way. I mean, everyone could have been killed. If they, if if some if they had laughed too loud or cried too loudly or shuffled their feet and someone complained, and all yep. of a sudden there would be a knock at the door and they would have been whisked away. Like to understand that the that the arts like the like Vatican II and um, Sacrosanctum Concilium has a whole section on on the importance of arts, and to us to 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 lose sight of. To reduce art, like, for instance, I, a priest friend of mine, he is just on fire for Christ. But he makes, I always critique him, that he has all the documents in the world, but he makes no room for fiction. And he's like, <laughs> I don't have time for fiction. I don't have time for made-up stories. And I was like, you don't not have time yes, for fiction. Yes, preach it. Because, okay, here I go again. In the words of Jordan Peterson, what is Shakespeare? Well, here's this individual's life and this individual's life and these 27 individual lives. And I will abstract with my genius intellect what is common amongst all those lives. And I will tell you the story of this is what ultimate betrayal is. This is what ultimate forgetfulness is. This is what ultimate nobility looks like. And in telling you a made-up story, he's conveyed more truth than a biography ever could. Yep. And when you finally understand that, then the Bible comes alive. Then all of the, the, to me, the Iliad and the Odyssey was the key to this world because I was like him, just give me theology. And it's like, how about you read a play? Nope. I don't care that Cardinal Ratzinger quotes some play written by some Jesuit about being strapped to the mass at the beginning of his uh, intro to Christianity. Just give me the intro to Christianity part. And it's like, no, no, because the symbols mean something, right? The symbolic use of storytelling communicates a Russian nesting doll's worth of information. It's polyvalent. There's not just the, the ark, the boat doesn't just mean one thing. And you can't fully know what the ark is of Noah until you get to the church, until you get to the bark of Peter, until you get to baptism. You can't even know all the meanings because Christ ultimately is the definitive word. And all those polyvalent meanings come out only in him and from him. So yeah. I, I've always been a little surprised by that mentality specifically well in my experience with catholics to not see poetically mm. they see literally mm. and I, I don't understand it because the bible needs to be read poetically and i don't understand how you understand the bible fully if you're not seeing the poetry in the natural world yeah you can't you can't read the bible fully you will in fact you will read the bible wrongly if you don't understand its poetry, because you will not recognize, to speak in terms of symbol does not mean it, it robs it of its factualness or, or right. veracity, its truthfulness. Right. It, it, it means it's talking about a deeper truth yeah, that you can only broader. get to through symbol <laughs> and metaphor. Yeah. And if you don't understand the language of symbol and metaphor, you will, you will, You'll flatten the Bible, and you won't understand the deeper meaning that it's trying to get to because you don't understand symbol and but, poetry. But think about the modern the modern mind, right? The modern mind does not like symbol. It likes what it calls raw facts, raw right. data, right? right? Sense experience. 
So it thinks it's being more reasonable, rational by reducing everything to just whirling atoms and not seeing the person. They think biology or chemistry or physics is more truthful than the symbols that are built upon it. But the thing is, they're like, yes, atoms matter and the forces matter and all of that beautifulness that are the building blocks, but it's the building blocks to a whole. And modern man, a, a W-H-O-L-E, and the modern man, like, we are so obsessed with dissecting, we don't yes. see the synthesis. We're lost in analysis. We're lost in breaking things apart. We don't see how that chemistry is not as good as biology, even though biology is less exact as chemistry, which is less exact as physics, which is less exact as mathematics. The more we progress, now we're into psychology, but like there's the human, <laughs> therein lies the person and consciousness, which cannot be defined. It cannot be defined by uh, uh, Newtonian physical laws. And because it can't be quantified, it's viewed as less true because yes. it, it must necessarily use symbols to communicate. It must. So if modern man only wants to proceed logically, if modern man wants to dispense with symbols in order to get at raw data, then modern man cannot be sacramental. Amen. You're, you're putting your finger on the crisis of the modern world right there. And, and if I could uh, put it in a sentence, I'll just quote Jesus. I've heard of him. We look, but we do not see. We look. We, when we look, we have reduced reality to the measurable, to what I can perceive with my physical senses. When we look and do not see, we, we miss all of the poetry. We miss all of the symbol. We miss sacramentality. And when, when you start applying that to, to the human body and you no longer see the body as sacramental and you only see the body through biological lenses, then the meaning evaporates. Yeah, and it's like here's an analogy. It's like it's like reducing the Mona Lisa to the chemical components of the paints. Yeah, and we get these. Uh, you know, I mean, thank God for art historians and restorators. Rest, is that a word? Art restorers who understand <laughs> the chemical components yeah. of the paints. But if we reduce the Mona Lisa merely to the chemical components of the paint, and we don't understand that an artist has put this paint on a canvas to tell a story, it would be a terrible abuse of an art restorationist to use his knowledge of paint and pigments to turn the Mona Lisa into a man with a mustache. You, you've totally changed the meaning and intention of the artist. When we no longer see the created world, and especially the human body, as a work of art then there's no longer an artist whose design and story we, we need to honor. And language gets reduced to the technician rather than to the, the, the reality of symbol and poetry and art, and we miss meaning. Yeah. It's but tragic. We think it, but we think it's more real. See, that's the problem. That's the right. inversion, is we that's think right. the non-symbolic is more real, but it's not. And then for Immanuel Kant to come along and say, well, that's just a mental construct that you're imposing on the, on the world around you because it's too complex. And you're like, okay, so this is, this is the end game of nominalism where it divorces my human knowing from the world around it, right? It's just a name that I impose upon it, you know, and this is what we do. 
What what are genitals? They're they're nothing. They're just a little exactly. bit of matter. And exactly. It's just a they're thing little that... things dangling between your legs that don't mean anything to the person. <laughs> or, or big or big things. Or big things. Or yeah. big things. But I'm Irish. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's something I've worked through with my therapist. It's you know you know you got what you got. It's uh, not the size of your ship, but how many times it's put out to port. I don't know what the saying is. No, and so l- let's conclude. Let's wrap up. I've, I've, I've dominated too much of your time talking about nominalism. So you also have something that we want to talk about. Um, what is the revealed experience? Go for it, Mike. Blow my mind. <clears throat> oh, geez. Um, well. <clears throat> Blow my mind without rocking in your chair because it's so squeaky. It'll drive is my it, audience right? insane. <laughs> oh, you can hear that? I'm, oh, I'm I can hear it. It sounds like an old screen door. That's what I'm sitting on, though. It's no, an old that, well, door. that makes sense. So, yeah, revealed. It's it, well, it's like a conference. <laughs> <laughs> Sell it, brother. Sell it. It's, uh, an event that we're doing. Uh, the dates that we're doing this event is May 13th to the 15th. Mm. So it's kind of multi-layered. The first layer is an actual physical gathering at Black Rock Retreat Center in Coryville, Pennsylvania. So we nice. will be gathering in person. Uh, there are only 80 uh, spots available for uh, attendees. Uh, right now, uh, they've been selling, so it's you know every day gets the number gets smaller and smaller. But uh, for the three days, we'll be gathering with um, the TBI staff, which includes Christopher, Bill Donahue, myself, Jen Settle, uh, a number of other people. Um, and then we also have guest uh, presenters. So we're going to have you know Jeff Cavins, Jason Everett, Matt Frad, um, Damon Owens. Who else? Uh, Other Mike Schmidt. Father Mike Schmitz, Abby uh, Ford uh, from Desert Tree Bobby Ministries. Bobby and Jackie Angel. Noise. So all my friends, all the people I text with. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. No, it's fine. I didn't want to go. I was busy that day. <laughs> <laughs> you can come. Um, but so we will be presenting, and and the and, and the, the way in which we're kind of structuring this thing is each presenter is going to have there's kind of like three different ways in which they're going to present. First off, each one will be doing a keynote that they will specifically address the audience with, and then after that, we're going to break it open with a conversation, much very similar to this, where you know you have the keynote, and then we're going to dive into kind of the alleyways around the topic, the the nooks and crannies that that the topic kind of conjures up. And then the last way in which the presenter would be um, active would be what we're calling the fireside chat, which is really just kind of uh, based on a bunch of people getting together and having a conversation. The the vision for it was kind of like, could you imagine uh, Christopher, Father Mike, and Jeff Cavins just like sitting at a table having a conversation? This is it. This is just no no script, just what's going to happen. The way, but... Just a bunch of of insecure people trying to impress everyone in the audience with how smart they are. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Well, let's talk about nominalism. (laughs) That's literally what it would be like if I were there. I would be Every time I do a Sumville Youth Conference, I'm just sitting around. I'm like, well, I got Sister Miriam here. And, okay, uh, better say something to impress her and reference healing. That way she will love me. (laughs) No, that's awesome. So you got the keynote. Then you got the round table. Yeah. And yeah, then what's but the really, third? So, so, and then the, the fireside chat thing. Yeah. 
Uh, so the conversation, keynote conversation, fireside chat. That's awesome. Uh, we're going to be filming this as well, and it's going to be live streamed. So people can access this as well for free uh, uh, by live streaming. All that information is at the website uh, tobinstitute.org. And uh, revealedexperience.com. Revealed that's right. Experience. All this will be in the show notes. I'll have all the links, all the stuff, the book, the promo code, and the retreat. Online, so it's an online experience as well as a physical in-person experience. You're gonna have great yeah. presenters, a full media team there making it happen. I love it. We all know we've, you know, COVID was a an opportunity for a lot of people to take conferences online, and and we all attended lots of those two years ago. And but we're we're trying to do something different here. It's not just pre-recorded videos. It's a live event. It's an experience. It's a happening. And there are three different ways to experience it. You can come in person. That's a limited number of seats. You can get the free uh, registration online and watch the keynotes. But if you want the full package online, uh, there's that word again. If you want the full package online, you would, you would, yeah, there's a premium pass that will give you access then to the fireside chats and behind the scenes conversations that will be going on. And who wouldn't want the full package? I mean, come on. It's a full package. Isn't that why we listen to Christopher West for the hey, full now. package? Steady. <laughs> Mike, what were you going to say? I, I forgot. The full no, package. Gonna, <laughs> full package. The dangle package? Uh, no. The, um, th- I was going to add one crucial part. And and, and just uh, I thought it was with what Christopher was saying. Like, you know, in the past couple of years, we've just been inundated with virtual experiences. And so one of the main things that we wanted to do with this is really, it, it's not a virtual conference. It's it's really just kind of an experience. You know, we're trying to break down the fourth wall for the virtual viewers. You know, they're going to have access, specifically the, the premium uh, attendees will have access to like all this, like just hanging with us. It's a hang. It's a big Catholic hang. And we want the virtual experience to be with us in that hang. So there's going to be interaction. There's going to be, um, you know, a lot of question answering and engagement. Um, so, so it's not just people watching something happen far away. It's something that all the attendees virtual or in person will be kind of gathered together. So it should be pretty cool if we can pull it off. Do you know, it'd be supremely awesome. This would be supremely awesome. If you did this in Facebook's metaverse, so it's as disembodied as humanly possible. You just had little avatars coming in and you did a round table fireside chat with. Well, that would little... be absolutely antithetical to the <laughs> theology of the body. Would it not? Uh, okay. Maybe we'll say maybe agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. <laughs> I just want to add that we're using a lot of creative technology to make this something fresh and new. Yeah. It'll, it'll be, it'll be a, a, a real fascinating experience. Put it that way. If we can, if we can pull it off, yeah. If you can. Or, or or a huge failure, yeah. And I'll be um, bunking with you. Yeah, but everyone, Maybe. tune in to find out which yeah. one it'll be. <laughs> which one? No, that's exciting. If you want to see the TOB Institute go down in flames with technological <laughs> failure, please tune in. Yeah, they put all their ba- ba- eggs in this one basket. Turned out, didn't have the Wi-Fi password the whole time. Oh, what a shame! Uh, I, I'm just... I am so self-conscious of my chair now. I apologize if uh, I have. I... No, but I, I will. I, I have to compliment you, Mike, when you were putting your headphones on. Oh, there gosh. all kinds of noises going down. 
<laughs> but I can edit that out because you weren't talking. With the See? with the chair, there were noises. No, 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 with your headphones, it was like scratch, scratch, scratch. When you were putting Rawr. your headphones in, it was. I always scratch my headphones before I put them on. Oh, good, good, that, good. That for way you. they they reciprocate yeah. the favor. Yeah, no, I get it, I get it. Um, yeah, so but don't worry, I can edit all that out. What I can't edit out is while you're talking. Mandates <laughs> are anywhere. We're gonna have an experience. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm about to have an embodied experience right now as I punch my monitor. But that's not you. That's not on you. I can edit all that out. Don't worry. It's the magic of editing. It's not live. God bless us. Um, so thank you all so much for coming on the show. Thank you for giving me of your time, uh, your talent, and your treasure. Um, I've enjoyed your work, Christopher, for years. Uh, Mike, I am now going to start enjoying it on May 13th through the 15th as you slow jam to the nations with, uh, with the revealedexperience.com. Are you going to be playing, right? I will be playing a little bit on Saturday. Yes, Saturday I'll play. <laughs> awesome. We're looking forward to it. Anything uh, final you want to say? Anything else? Anything you want to plug? Be I'm not sure you got afraid. an album? You got an album, I wanna, Mike? I want to plug this thing called Easter. Okay, I've heard of it. And and I want to say, be not afraid of the full ramifications and implications. Implications. <laughs> and implications of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Bodily resurrection the whole idea that we're going to be angels in heaven and the whole idea that we just get buried in the ground and all you have is a rotting corpse those are both cop-outs from facing the real proclamation of easter bodily resurrection this is our destiny thank you god and and buy my record yes (laughs) which will be in the show notes. God bless y'all. Thank you for coming. I'm going to hit stop and you guys are just going to let it keep rolling. So I'm going to...